I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is our Berlin special podcast, Leilani. We, we try to be at it it's when it's happening, and it's, it's kind of alarming news coming out of Berlin. Have you, have you, have you noticed? I sure have noticed. It's uh, devastating for tenants. There's no doubt about it. Uh, The Constitutional Court ruling striking down Berlin's rent cap, obviously something that tenants really needed, wanted, and were relying on. Big news. Yeah, and it's it's obviously that people now can get like thousands of euros in, in claims from landlords. And in the middle of this pandemic, when so many people may have very unstable income stream it's uh, it's devastating 20th of january last year 2020 the senator berlin decided on a rent cap on all apartments in in berlin on not the new built but the old older apartments and a lot of people got the rent lowered big time so it's a year of lower rent is now to be ended for us now to we need to know more and we have invited two berliners to to our podcast it's florian schmidt who is a local councillor in, in Kreuzberg, Friedrichshain, is it? And F- Florian was also featured in the film Push. Not as strongly as Leilani, but still featured. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have uh, Christoph Trautwetter, uh, who is uh, uh, in an independent researcher working for the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, but also for the, the Tax Justice Network of Germany. And he has looked deeply into the German real estate and all the investments floating in. Welcome to Pushback Talks, Christoph and, and Florian. Yes, welcome. Welcome. Hello. Florian, you were out on the streets this weekend. It was like something, it really took off quick. Yes, it was a surprisingly big manifestation on Friday, only some hours after uh, the city got the information. And there have been more than 10,000, maybe 20,000 people on the streets with a lot of anger and asking the federal politics to react quickly and to try to fix what the federal court now has done. Because it, it, it basically means that people have to pay back money. Yes. Since more than one year, um, the, the rent cap was, was decided and every landlord has to adapt. Not all the rents have been touched, but a lot. And many people have now to, to fill, a, fill the hole that can be only 10 euros a month, but it can also be 400 euros a month. Some people, which is really hard, uh, they rented a new flat and they maybe did not um, be aware of the, of the risk that this law could be, be challenged by, by the federal court and they rented a flat that they could not pay in reality which, with the, the, the old rent. So it's really hard for them. It's really the, the hardest thing what could happen then. So that could be like 5,000 5, euros on one. Yes, on... But one, one thing is what you have to pay back. But the other thing is if you rent it now a flat that is too expensive for you, mm-hmm. then maybe you cannot stay in the flat. Uh, and so this is these are really hard cases that we, the politics in Berlin now have to take care of. Uh, Christoph, you've been really looking into who owns Berlin. 
and uh, that's like a part of your amazing research how do you how do you, how did you react on this uh, announcement that came friday well i missed uh, the demonstration and the good vibes that were going around there and i had but i heard reactions from many people who got new um aspirations from that demonstration but maybe looking at the at the raw figures we have about two million apartments here in berlin and we saw that between 300 and 500,000 of those apartments had their rents lowered and several hundred thousands more who didn't have their rents increased during this one and a half years of the rent cap being instituted. So it's really a big share of the population that is negatively affected by this um, decision of the court and a big part of the population that is asking now hopefully for a more progressive rent regulation at the federal level. Leilani, how do you, what is, what was your quick reaction to this? I mean, my first reaction was uh, complete uh, solidarity with the tenants who are obviously, as uh, Christoph just said, so many tenants deeply affected by the judgment. On the other hand, I think the the court was very clear in saying this is the federal government's role and it's clear that tenants need affordable housing. Well, the court didn't say that, but it's clear from the people on the streets, from what tenants have been organizing and saying, they need more affordable housing. And so to me, the writing is on the wall. The national level government has to act and has to ensure affordable apartments for Berliners. And in fact... That is their human rights obligation anyway, under international human rights law, affordable housing. It's one of the key aspects of the human right to housing. So I think the, in a way, the court has laid down the gauntlet uh, to the national level government to say, okay, you know, now it's, now it's time. That's a very positive reading. <laughs> Maybe just, uh, just a very small add on to that. I think the courts don't, didn't only pass on the responsibility to the federal government, uh, I think I was disappointed personally that the court didn't address the rent cap at all. They basically just said it's not Berlin's responsibility. But in the German constitution, it says ownership comes with responsibility and people have a right to housing. And the court hasn't addressed this issue at all. They haven't said anything on the content and the idea of the rent cap and how our constitution allows for regulating rents beyond the rent cap that we have. And I, I think that was the major disappointment of that dis, uh, decision, basically, that the court has chosen the easy way to just say it was not Berlin's responsibility and hasn't addressed the content issue at all. I totally, I totally agree with, with, with what Christoph said. We can design the framework, the political framework of the the whole um, housing market always has been like this. Oh, rents are rising. That's what since ever happens. And that's what life is. Um, you have the strong tenant uh, landlords and the, the weak tenants. That's a kind of gap of power. And that's what society is. So this law, even if the court stopped it, has now made possible that people are consciousness that this could be different. Yeah, the power of politics is to maybe also tell people that things are possible. The world could be different. And now you have 
more than a year experience of a different way of, of putting up the rents. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. And I think it's hard to, to, to turn around. The right and liberal politicians, the only thing they said is now, oh, we have to take care of the tenants with problems now. They have not said, yes, that's our, our game and we did it because they know exactly that this will fall back on themselves. I mean, to our listeners, this lawsuit that brought the Berlin Senate decision was challenged by 284 members of the German parliament from the government, I mean, the CDU, CSU, and from the FTP. So it's like center-right parties. So basically, the, the voters have names of every parliamentarian that are not pushing up their rent. It, it's like, it seems like very bad politics. There are almost 2 million apartments in Berlin, and then 1.6 million are, are renters. So Ber also the, the situation is quite unique in Berlin with so many people renting, meaning also people who vote for, for <laughs> conservative or, or center-right parties. So they are they're, they're in some way also punishing their own voters. I didn't realize that it was members of parliament themselves challenging the Berlin rent cap. And I mean, you know, obviously the frame I use, the law I use is international human rights law. And that is obviously completely contrary to human rights obligations. They should be defenders of affordable housing and the right to housing for tenants. That's the role of members of parliament. And I agree with what both Christoph and Florian were saying about, I didn't realize this, that it, that the court didn't touch on the rent cap uh, from the constitutional perspective at all. That is a complete missed opportunity. But again, for me, it says, I know your national government understands well the right to housing because the German government supported my mandate when I was UN rapporteur. They provided political support for my mandate. Of all states around the world, Germany knows best the right to housing because they were the strongest supporter of my mandate. For me, it's like, okay, I would be using that as leverage because they can't speak differently at the international level than they speak in the, at the domestic level. It seems like they do, Florian. Well, I, I'm, I'm not so much into the international diplomacy uh, activities of Germany. I think, of course, Germany is one of the most progressive nations uh, concerning rent regulation. That makes it easy for German government to support anybody who asks for the tenants' rights. What is going on here was a kind of revolution against real estate capitalism, and it's more than regulation as we know it. That's why the right-wing liberal parties uh, really stopped it with the help of the constitutional. And they, they represent the owners, the, they represent parts of the economy, and they have the, the highest donations from real estate industry for the party. So there's a link, a direct link in, in a kind of yes, political class that is right-wing liberal class and real estate, because real estate, as you know, is one of the biggest business in, in the whole whole world, in every nation. It's like 20% of the whole um, economy. Now, no, this points towards Christoph, because this is exactly what you've been looking into. Berlin has had, as many cities around the world, a very radical uh, race of rents. It's been, it's been pushed up over a very few years to, to, to the extremes. So you started to look into who owns Berlin. 
Can you tell us more about your research, Christoph? Yeah, right. Uh, so what you said is not 100% correct. What we've seen in Berlin is actually that the house prices have exploded and basically caught up to what is going on at the international level. As Florian already said, regulation of rent is quite strong in Germany. And we've seen that house prices have been very low in international comparison. House prices in Berlin have been particularly low and they have exploded. And the rents are running behind this explosion of housing prices. And it's this big gap between what is possible at the market, that's something like 15 to 20 euros per square meter, and what is happening in the regulated housing that is five or six or seven euros. And this huge gap between the in-place rent of five euros and the market rent of 15, 20 euros, that is the pressure that tenants in Berlin feel. And that is why this topic is so important in Berlin. Now, if you look at the ownership structure and you ask yourself who has benefited from this huge increase of prices, the huge increase of the assets that they hold here in Berlin, you see that about half of those people have been multimillionaires before and have tripled or doubled their wealth without doing anything for it, right? without moving any finger just because they used to own big parts of Berlin. Now they're three times richer than 10 years ago because of this increase. And I think that's the central finding of my research that the owners of Berlin real estate are not individuals who have one or two apartments, but it's very few thousand people who own big chunks, sometimes a few thousand apartments, sometimes a few hundred or even just dozens of apartments, which very quickly makes them multimillionaires. So a wealth of 10, 20, 200 or even 2 billion euros that is passed on from generation to generation or is traded on the financial markets. And that has doubled or tripled in the last 10 years. There is not an official register who owns what in Berlin. So you, you've been trying to trace the ownership And there was one story that you published uh, like a few months ago that also uh, some of the bigger news uh, magazines uh, reported. I could see that, the, for example, Blackstone, our favorite, uh, our favorite hedge fund that we nice to talk, to talk about, you were tracing some property back to them, but it was a long journey. Can you tell us about that journey? That's a story that most uh, researchers who try to understand real estate ownership around the world can identify with because the situation is similar to many other places in the world. First of all, there is a register that records the legal owners. Like in most places, real estate ownership registers, that's an ancient thing. In Germany, we have them for over 100 years, but we have a problem. They are not openly accessible. You can access individual entries. As a tenant, you can ask who owns your building. As a researcher or a journalist, you can, under certain circumstances, explain to the register why you need the information and you get individual information, but we don't have the whole data. So we can't do a data analytics. We can't do, uh, we can't do real research with the data because we only have individual entries and we have to puzzle it together. So the research is more of a puzzle than of a real anal analysis uh, that you would be used from, uh, from research. Now, if you look at Blackstone, we see a second problem. 
In the case of Blackstone, it's not only getting access to the real estate register, but it's also a question of corporate intransparency and registers of corporate ownership around the world that is a problem. So if you look at Blackstone, you will see that they own that they have German companies, many different German companies, dozens of companies owning individual houses in Berlin. And above those companies, you have complex structures in Luxembourg, in the Cayman Islands, uh, and then all the way up to Delaware and to the US. Uh, and in just for one house in Berlin, you would see at least 10 layers of corporate uh, property or corporate structures above this one house uh, leading up to the final investor. And that's uh, once you, you get access actually to the ownership to understand the structures behind and the real owners behind, very often you have to go through that layers. And the case of Blackstone, I guess it's the extreme. So 10 layers until the very end, uh, I guess it's, it's one of the extremist cases. It's, uh, it's very common that uh, you have those structures. And I would estimate that in Berlin, about half of the, re half of the apartments are owned by corporate structures. So in half of the cases, you have this kind of research uh, to do and then to come to the final end to understand who is actually behind those investment structures. So Leilani is basically yeah. <laughs> almost like uh, the invasion from the tax havens into a big city. It's incredible. I really love Christoph's work on this, and I think it's so important and certainly uh, a model for other cities because I hear as I, tra <laughs> when I used to travel, now I hear it through other means. Um, I hear this a lot from tenants that they don't know who owns their building and they can't figure it out. And beneficial ownership, which is just one part of what Christoph was talking about, isn't easy to access. Even, even in countries where there's beneficial ownership laws, that's where where it has to be shown who is the warm body, the human being that actually owns the unit. Um, it's often really difficult. And, you know, I mean, there's a simple thing about this. Like, it's like, well, who cares? What's, what's the matter? Well, when you're a tenant, I, most tenants I know want to know who their landlord is, not just who the property manager is. They want to know who their landlord is so that... In, in particular, when there's a crisis going on, like a global pandemic, and you've lost your job or you're underemployed, you have someone to go to with whom you have a relationship, and you can talk and negotiate and deal like that. And I mean, that's just a simple thing. And we, how we got to a place where it is so not simple, L listen to what Christoph just said. I mean, layers and layers, and we're bouncing from Luxembourg to the Cayman Islands and then to Delaware half of the properties in a city like Berlin. That's a lot. Florian, for you as a politician in Berlin, I mean, it must be very helpful to get this research that Christoph has done. It must help you to communicate who owns Berlin and, and what you are up against together as Berliners. I'm very happy to have Christoph here in Berlin and with his research. When I started in four years before in the local government here in the district, uh, one of the first things I, I did was to, to ask my peoples in the administration to, to create a map, uh, a map of ownership. It's not only about knowing who owns the city, but it's to change who owns the city. It's really um, an interesting situation in, in the last four years in Berlin and also especially in, in the district where I'm governing. We really did a change. We, we, we reached to increase the share of housing 
towards common good um, from 25 to 28%. So it's about in this district only 4,000 flats. It's not, it's not all, but it's a first step. And there is a, a really a, a big interest when people know, oh, we could buy the house for ourselves, not, in, not the way con, to create condominiums, but at a collective ownership, a non-speculative ownership. And what the state must do is to, to, to help people that they can help themselves also. It's, mm. it's a, a package of projects and levels. Of course, we can talk hours about it. Um, but from what I did here and what was my concern in the last four years was to show that we can change ownership. And you've been you've been buying houses back. So, I mean, that's something you talk about already in push. There is like Leilana, you've seen that it's it's a, it's a big thing going on now. There is a company called Deutsche Wohnung, which is it's very big in Berlin. They have two hundred forty thousand apartments, and now there is a big campaign out there to expropriate Deutsche Wohnung. How do you how do you react on that word? It sounds like a bit <laughs> communistic, like the old days. I think it's uh, a lovely word, and I think it's the, a, a timely word uh, because so much expropriation has happened the other way. It just hasn't always been called expropriation, um, but really the extraction of wealth and profits from everyday people has been going on. That's a kind of expropriation by uh, entities like Blackstone and other private equity firms and hedge funds. But uh, I'm very interested to hear more from uh, Christoph and Florian about uh, what's 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 happening with this uh, referendum and uh, how's it going to roll. Well, maybe let let me go one step back. Um, why I think this uh, this referendum is so important. Um, if you look at wealth structures in Germany, you see that one percent of the population owns nearly 40% of the wealth. And as I said, a few thousand people nearly own half of Berlin, right? So at the heart, real estate is a question of distribution of wealth, right? And you could say it's also a question of regulation. You can say it's fine if a few thousand people own the whole city, if they can just rent out for five euros and they do it nicely, that's perfectly fine. But that hasn't worked very well. Uh, and we see that even though our constitution says ownership comes with social responsibility, that's not what actually happens. We see that owners stay anonymous. And as Leilani said, they're not available for this negotiation in the pandemic to see that uh, can we not just uh, be responsible and be nice. But we see that the financial market has removed this responsibility completely. And that's where expropriation comes in at a point where we say, okay, we can't manage to regulate enough to make sure that ownership comes with social responsibility. So private ownership doesn't create social housing, doesn't create fair conditions. Uh, we need to expropriate, right? And that's uh, where this campaign comes in. And it's, uh, I guess, also, if you look back to the protests that happened after the rent cap, that's the big hope of people in Berlin, that now that's the second step. Um, and it's always been around there saying, first cap the rents and then expropriate. Um, I think it's um, even more tricky from a constitutional perspective. 
it's uh, more difficult than the rent cap and it will take longer and be a much more uh, profound change. But I think just like in the rent cap, we should be courageous and try the step and see what the constitutional court says uh, and test our constitution and bring back this constitutional rule that ownership comes with, uh, with responsibility again into, into the law, right? Into politics. It's interesting. I mean, when we talk about expropriation, it's when you build a new railway line or you build a new road, sometimes you have to, the state has to expropriate or you know, now we are buying this from you, from the farmer. Or, so, I mean, in infrastructure projects, it's, it's something cities or states do. So, I mean, I guess, Leilani, we could regard housing as infrastructure for people. You know, we need, we need homes. So it's, it, maybe it's not that radical as we see. Maybe the radical thing is this development that Christoph is showing up in his research, that, that the big of, uh, a bunch of billionaires have, have taken over a city. Exactly. I love that. Turning it completely upside down. And I think that's, I think it's absolutely right. And, and governments have had no problem, interestingly enough, expropriating people's homes to put in highways and shopping malls and golf courses. Uh, so uh, I, that's another thing I love about the Berlin uh, movement, because it's saying, let's do expropriation actually for social value, for social good, to ensure, because regulations haven't worked well enough, it's time now for the state to get back in the game in a meaningful way. And I, I mean, I think that's right. And I think there's a broader thing going on right now where it's becoming a little more acceptable to talk about um, governments actually doing housing and and creating more public assets. It's certainly something I've been working on pretty hard, trying to get governments right now during this pandemic to have right of first refusal to purchase what were private buildings, whether it's office buildings, hotels, motels, and turn them into public assets, which they then protect in perpetuity forever as public assets, as affordable and deeply affordable housing. I'm not sure I'm winning that game yet myself, but uh, I, I see this as all part. There is more of a movement now. People are starting to question the old ways a little bit. Even the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has said... Well, they were speaking out of both sides of their mouth at the moment, but on out of one side of their mouth, they have said that governments have to get more engaged in, in social well-being and human well-being. Yeah, I mean, we in our podcast, we had uh, Franz Timmermans, the, the EU commissioner, a few weeks ago, and we had a Danish housing ministers. There are forces that before were like kind of much, very much in bed with, a, with the market who are now saying, okay, now... The market has been running wild. We have to we have to get some kind of grip over this situation because it's it's running out of our hands. Florian and Christoph, we we called we call this uh, podcast pushback talk. So, so what is the pushback you we are we can expect from Berlin now to be to inspire the world? Maybe to make one thing clear. So this expropriation campaign is uh, live and kicking. They are collecting signatures and they will be passing the referendum most likely together with the elections in September. But just to make clear what you've said, it's actually very radical. It's not the same of expropriating a, a, a land for building a street, a highway. The main difference is when you expropriate a street for building a highway, you compensate the owner 
at the market value, right? So usually it's a very good business for someone to own land uh, and a street being built there because he's gonna get handsomely compensated. And the pro proposal for expropriating Deutsche Wohnen and Co is to not pay the market value, but to pay something substantially lower. And that's where the proposal gets radical and, and useful also, because personally, I think there's not much point in changing the management from Deutsche Wohnen to some city-based organization if you pay the market price. Because the main point of this expropriation campaign is to correct for the price explosion that we saw in the last 10 years. So you have to get back this wealth that was extracted through the increased prices over the last 10 years uh, and redistributed to the, uh, to the owners of Deutsche Wohnen. And you can do that only if you pay them a lower price than the market value. So if you give them back what they invested 10 years ago and not the double or the triple, that's when the idea gets radical, that's when it gets useful, and that's where I would call it a real expropriation. And our constitution a and a real pushback. And I think that's that would be the major pushback directly to the main problem, right? Because the main problem, as I said, has been the increasing prices, the wealth inflation um, that we see around the world, but also here in Berlin. And just turning back the time to 10 years ago when housing was affordable in Berlin, that's exactly the pushback that uh, I think we're looking at and we're looking for. As I said, that's very radical. It builds on a, on a completely different part of the constitution, not the part of the constitution that says you can expropriate uh, for a road, but that you can say you can expropriate for a social good and you might not even have to pay uh, the market value. This moves now from being a Berlin story to something that you can, I mean, this is something they will talk about in, in Hamburg, in Munich, and in many other cities around Germany, because Berlin has been for a long time one of the more affordable cities to live in. The other cities have been under this stress before. So I guess this is something that the whole Germany can talk about. And you have elections now come up, being, is it in September? Everyone looked at Berlin. Everyone was fascinated or scared of what happened in Berlin, now people will look what 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 happens in these elections. And my my only my only fear is that if if we have again the the right wing party, the, the since ever governing right wing party CDU um, governing, it we will not have a big change. So problem is we we have to hope that this does not happen. That we have a leftist green government in in the which we never had in history. Um, that would be great for the, the housing issue. But if we don't have this, then we, we know that we are, in a way, we are we have to do it differently. And the, mm. the, the, the issue of expropriation, of changing the, the, the property will be more important. So now it's really also about a new regulation system on federal level or kind of, um, let's say, um, handcrafted, um, get push back in the neighborhood. This is what we are in this mm. situation. We need both, yeah, of course. Yeah. But if we don't get the federal regulation, we only have the handcrafted stuff. And this is, that does not mean that we are loose. I would like to propose a third pushback. So if 
Florian has said we need a better federal regulation and we try handcrafted solutions at the local level. But I think in between we need a more urgent third pushback. Right? The expropriation is a local, very direct and very radical pushback to the housing crisis. But the underlying issue is a question of unequal distribution of wealth. And we don't get that solved as easily, I'm afraid, as the housing activists in Berlin might hope. Right? If we talk about expropriation, that touches on the essence of a very unjust society, on the essence of a very unequal distribution of wealth. And I'm happy if they manage, if we manage with the expropriation campaign to change the society in such a basic way, but I'm critical that this will happen in any meantime. That's why I would say we need a much more direct uh, preparation to make this fundamental change. And this direct pushback is more transparency. And that's something that we can actually do from Berlin before the elections. And I'm working very hard at the moment uh, for the city to make me redundant, to make my research uh, unnecessary and to make me unemployed from that perspective, because I have other interesting things to do. But for the city of Berlin, basically, to publish the information of who owns um, the real estate. And maybe not all of you have seen it, but France just a few weeks ago went ahead and published all the owners of real estate throughout France. And I think that's the fundamental next step to create transparency that Germany needs to take and follow the French example, follow the British example, follow what we see in New York already, put this information out there. What are the corporations that own real estate in Berlin, in Germany, and then have a good documentation of this unfair distribution of wealth to make people understand that this is what they need to change and this should be the target. And then we can talk about the right measures. We can talk about the wealth tax. We can talk about inheritance tax. We can talk about expropriation uh, that all address the same problem. But then we can go and negotiate what might be the most uh, relevant, the most suitable tool to actually make this change. We can also about talk about paying taxes because most of these owners don't pay tax in Germany because they are filtering their money out through tax havens. It's very frustrating because all of us are paying taxes where we live, but they don't. I think what Christoph just said about transparency as a sort of broader third pushback is uh, really important also from the point of view of exposing the role that real estate plays in wealth and gross wealth inequality. Uh, in my experience, there's a lot of work being done on inequality around the world, and it's now recognized as a huge and significant problem, but very little emphasis or analysis on the way in the pivotal role that real estate plays in this and Christophe's suggestion and what France did and I did notice that uh, it goes directly to that because it exposes who, who, how the players are using real estate to accumulate their wealth. They exposed, they published who owns what and where across the whole country, as I understand it. So uh, it was pretty radical in a way so that every tenant would know who owns their building. 
Um, so it, it's a it's a level of transparency that should be just normal. That should be normal. And you know, in the in I've been involved in the U.S. out in California in a case where they were just a legal case where they were just trying to get that information exposed, and they in fact the case was not uh, successful. So this transparency issue is very key. But I like it linked to real estate because uh, I mean, Frederick, you and I know. I mean, we've been talking about this now for many years the 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 way in which so much corrupt money that i read that statistic 80% of corrupt money lands in real estate we know the golden visa program is geared toward real estate there's so many ways in which real estate is the driver of inequality and people don't talk about it that way it still it remains a thing that people want a, a piece of right Everyone wants to, a piece of real estate rather than understanding the way it drives this gross inequality and all of the, the effect of inequality. The story of Berlin is also that the very culture of Berlin is threatened, and that goes to almost every city. We've talked a lot about a bookshop in, in Berlin that is under pressure. And Can you tell me about that, the bookshop story on Oranienstrasse, Christoph? It's also a very interesting case. So this bookshop is owned by an investment fund from Luxembourg. And at the moment, they can't find out who is behind, so the warm blood person behind that investment fund in Luxembourg. The building the building of the bookshop, you mean, yeah. Right, so the, and so the owners want to kick out the bookshop and the contract of the bookshop has been canceled in the middle of the pandemic. And the bookshop said, we don't want to be expropriated. We don't want to be kicked out at this moment. And we would like to talk to our owners and negotiate a better, a better solution. But they don't manage to reach their owners. They just manage to talk to the lawyer of the managers of the investment fund. And we've tried everything to find out who's the warm blood person behind this investment fund. And we always end up with three wealth managers from Liechtenstein and Switzerland who say they're the trustees. Right, who manage this money on behalf of someone that they don't want to tell us. And we have very strong uh, hints that this is a wealthy family from Sweden and from the UK, billionaires that inherited their wealth in the third generation from their grandfather and that are now using this money for philanthropy around the world. So they do good things with the money, but they earn it in a very bad way. For example, this family, one of these foundations is supporting the Granta magazine in the UK. So it's, so they put, they put money into progressive projects, but then they, their money is placed around the world. And I guess not every single family member knows exactly where the money comes from because it's you have asset managers um, who runs the show but that's exactly why transparency is so important so that because maybe the owners themselves the 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 warm body as we're talking maybe they actually would care about letting the book shop stay you know the, the warm body themselves might actually have an interest in ensuring that bookshop stays where it is so i wanted to just say that you know, Berlin and Berliners have been an inspiration to me in my work for many years now. And this podcast now, just talking with you, uh, Christoph and Florian, has uh, renewed my the inspiration I feel from you. And I, I'm in the middle of uh, trying to draft some human rights 
directives for governments about how they should be dealing with financialization. And I take huge inspiration from some of the things that uh, Christophe and Florian said to us, Frederick, today. Um, The idea that regulation isn't enough, for example, which is so clear. Um, The idea that we need to do more radical things. And Christophe was talking about actually disrupting land value. That's, you know, that's how I took what he was saying, you know, disrupting it and, and not allowing um, the market to dictate uh, current uh, values. And then just the idea of consciousness, which I think push is all about. I love what Florian said, you know, once, once you hit consciousness, there's no going back. And that's what push the film was intended to do was to force a kind of consciousness. And, and I think our friends in Berlin force a kind of consciousness on all of us. So there, that's my inspiration. For sure, uh, Florian and Christoph, we will we will follow you deeply. What you, what is what you're going to do now? So, uh, do you have any final words to our listeners out there, Florian, Christoph? I, I think um, I, I said a lot of, of how we can interpret interpret the the whole situation positively, but um, I think one thing we we have not said is. We, we always um, see the capitalism here as uh, the problem, but maybe there is also an opportunity if we, if we could um, regulate the money. Because when I, when I did some um, right to first refusal, um, I, I also worked with, with common good banks and cooperatives. And there, is, there are a lot of, there are some banks who really give the opportunity to the, the people who have money to, to invest the money in a, in a good way. And this, this anonymous system of capital is a big problem, I think. And there is, there is no, not a real, um, um, let's say, effort, a, good, a real big project that we could say we need a bank law, that banks should explain what is the money doing. And if people could decide, okay, we put the money in the in our own city and we invested in good projects and we invest we are investing to buy back our city, maybe they would do it. And I, I made the experience that people are able to 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 get some money from their family if they can buy their own flat in a cooperative system. So one movement should also be to try really to educate money, educate banks and also give people the opportunity to, to invest their money in, in let's say common good projects not only housing just an idea that could also be interesting in this situation i fully agree to florian's last point and I, i'm very happy to see that our research has uh, reached exactly that target where it has to go so it's a question about taming capitalism and financialization and that's not a local question it's an international question It's a question that we can explain very well through housing because that's where financialization reaches the doorstep of people. But it's not where the problem can be solved. The problem will have to be solved internationally. And uh, Leilani, likewise, I draw a lot of inspiration from uh, your work at the international level. And I think the big challenge going forward will be to connect this very local understanding, the local pushback against financialization and capitalism gone wild uh, with the idea of uh, capitalism tamed by human rights uh, and channeled 
into the right uh, right direction. And I think that's uh, what I will continue working on. Um, and I'm very looking forward very much to, to keep doing that in a good exchange uh, with you guys. That's really cool. I mean, when we, when we are been out showing push around the world, a lot of people ask us, so, okay, what can we do? And I've always told people, map your own city, map your own neighborhood. I, I, think, I think, still think that is a very good advice to everybody who listens here. Who owns your block, your part of town, your city? And then you will get a bit better understanding. It's also easier to fight back when you know who you're up against, even if they're mighty. Remember that you have friends around the world now, and, and, and this pushback is, is actually growing. And we know it because we talk to people all over the world constantly. So we will, we will call you back to, find, to follow your work in Berlin because it's truly inspirational. Thank you for being a part of this, and, and, and good luck with your work. Yeah, thank you both so much. Keep going. See you. Thanks to all of you. Goodbye. Okay. Thank you and, and goodbye. Leilani, we, I guess we need to, to meet again and keep talking. Always meeting, Frederick. We're always meeting. Yeah. But hey, <laughs> I think we have one more thing to say, don't we, Frederick? Oh, you mean that we're running this show without any funds? <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're doing this because we have time, but not because we have money. So we, when I, st I will soon hopefully be on the road to make new films and then we will need to be able to fund this. So go, go and support us, please. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>